This conviction, we expect, will bring a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. It is a sentence from which there is no escape and no return. This conviction is a victory for the American people who has suffered so long and so much while Guzman made billions pouring poison over our southern border. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. That was U.S. Attorney Richard Donahue selling the masses his justice served narrative after the conviction this week of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. Better known by his nickname, Spanish for Shorty, Guzman rose to prominence in the Sinaloa Federation Drug Trafficking Organization, where he allegedly became the most prolific and successful drug profiteer in history. Ironic, then, that a nation where capitalism is the only common religion wouldn't find something to admire in a man who came from a humble background, worked his way up the ranks of a powerful organization, neutralized his rivals along the way, and took over its leadership. From 2008 until his second capture in 2014, Guzman's pharmaceutical manufacturing giant, if you will, was the primary supplier of illicit marijuana, heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine to the United States. Today, it is said the Sinaloa drug cartel's reach extends to the Far East. During Guzman's reign, Mexico's drug trafficking gangs experienced a tenuous but measurable peace known among academics as Pax Sinaloa. But now that a head of the Hydra has been severed, who knows what will emerge? I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. On this episode, my co-host Christopher Moraff traveled to the Vice News office in Brooklyn to speak with editor Keegan Hamilton, who has been closely tracking Guzman's trial since it began. Before we get to that, this is just a quick note to say that Narcotica is an independent, ad-free production, and we want to keep it that way. If you like the show, learn how to support us at patreon.com narcotica. And now on to the program. I'm Keegan Hamilton. I'm the U.S. editor at Vice News and the host of the podcast Chapo Kingpin on Trial. And um, Keegan's been following the trial and covering the trial. And prior to that, um, you spent some time in Mexico digging deeper into the legacy of El Chapo. Um, Why don't you talk a little bit about um, how that um, sort of facilitated itself and uh, what the process was like getting that kind of access? So we started working on this podcast uh, about a year ago in January 2018, and I'd been following, you know, Chapo as as a figure for you know years now, uh, especially since he was extradited to the U.S. to stand trial. Um, you know, once we knew that this trial was going to happen, that it was actually going to go to trial, and he wasn't going to plead guilty, uh, we really wanted to tell the story in a different way that it had been told, go deeper, and really give people uh, a more nuanced understanding than just Chapo is the kingpin who's responsible for all of these drugs coming into the U.S. and the, the one guy who's running the Sinaloa cartel. It's more complicated than that, and we wanted to do that story justice. And in order to do that, we knew we had to go to Sinaloa and talk to people on the ground there. And how did you manage to do that? What was it? Like a lot of uh, foreign reporting, we really relied heavily on a fixer. If you listen to our podcast podcast, 
we tried to be as transparent as possible about that. The first, ep- ep- the first episode of the show is called The Fixer, and we introduce uh, our listeners to the guy we work with, Miguel Angel Vega, who is a reporter for the local newspaper Rio Doce, which sort of specializes in covering organized crime and the drug trade in Sinaloa. He has uh, some amazing connections in Culiacan and the state of Sinaloa to people at, in basically you know, every facet of the drug trafficking trade. Journalists have uh, been targeted uh, a lot in Mexico. Um, how has he managed to sort of navigate both sides of the uh, of the trade without making enemies? And did you ever feel like your life was in danger while you were there? The threat to journalists is very real in Mexico. Unfortunately, it's the Mexican reporters who are in the line of fire, uh, much more so than foreign reporters. I, I think, yeah, as it was explained to us and as I think is accurate, the cartels know that if they target a foreign reporter, it's going to cause problems. The last thing they want is to have something impact their business. And and killing an American who's coming to the, to the country to report is certainly going to have blowback. On the other hand, we've seen over and over that cartels can kill Mexican reporters with impunity. And that's something that is covered as well in the podcast is, is Miguel Angel what was personally affected by that. Uh, the co-founder of his newspaper, Javier Valdez, was murdered uh, in 2017, uh, pretty much in the aftermath of El Chapo's capture and extradition. So we, we talk about that in the show and, and how it affected him. He basically had to leave his hometown of Culiacan and now lives in Mexico City and goes back to report. So let's talk a little bit about the the legacy of El Chapo, the mythology of, Sh- of Shorty versus uh, the man. Um, what did you learn um, that may be, you know, different or the same about the two? I mean, uh, he is, you know, he, he is one man that has, you know, a legacy that, that sort of outreaches certainly his his status, I would think, you know, and, and as is common with uh kingpins and people in the trade and even journalists at times. So, um, you know, what did you learn about uh, Chapo, the man that you found maybe conflicted or or sort of supported the way he's viewed um, in the media? Certainly there is a lot of myth to the El Chapo story. And one of the things that we set out to do was was cut through that myth and, and tell people who El Chapo really is. And like any myth, or like most myths, there is some sort of granule of truth at the heart of it. Uh, We wanted to go to his hometown in Sinaloa, in the mountains of the Golden Triangle. Uh, It's a very remote area. Uh, It takes about five hours to drive there from the nearest major city, Culiacan. And we wanted to speak with his family and and hear about, you know, who this, this guy was when he was growing up, before he was famous. The story that everyone always tells about El Chapo was that they w- he was so poor that his family uh, needed him to go sell oranges by the side of the road as a way to, to make some money. You know, we, we met with his mom and sister and asked, is that, is that true? I said, yeah, he, he really did sell items by the side of the road, oranges, bread that his mom would make. He would go to the, the sort of like the, the only store in this town and buy snacks and then go down the road to try to sell goods by the highway. Eventually, he starts growing marijuana and poppy uh, to be refined into heroin and, you know, gets involved in the drug trade 
in Mexico in starting in the late 70s, much more so in the 80s. And then in the early 90s is when he sort of catapults into fame. He he was at one point sort of a, an anonymous mid-level drug trafficker. But then in 1993, there's this incident at the airport in Guadalajara, Mexico, where a cardinal from the Catholic Church is uh, murdered in what is the cardinal's murdered in what is described most often as uh, a sort of a, a case of mistaken identity where somebody was trying to kill Chapo and they thought that the cardinal was him because he was driving in a similar car. Chapo is ultimately sort of blamed for this killing and that is the, the moment uh, when he becomes you know El Chapo a name that everyone knows. He spends the next uh, eight or nine years in prison. And then, of course, his 2001 escape purportedly in a laundry cart from a maximum security prison is what then takes him to the next level. And it grows and grows and grows. He's, he you know escapes again through a tunnel. He meets Sean Penn. All of these you know events over the years build and build and build on each other until El Chapo, the, the humble boy from the mountains of Sinaloa, becomes El Chapo, the all-powerful kingpin, the Pablo Escobar of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like, um, much like, you know, maybe John Gotti, the Teflon Don, much of Chapo's fame was sort of this untouchable quality that he had. Um, so what kind of network did he establish that he became the most most prolific drug trafficker of our, of our time? At, at its peak, you know, what did the Sinaloa cartel encompass? So... You know, of course, El Chapo did not do it alone. He he really relied on key partners in the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, when you hear a lot of news coverage about El Chapo, and I think the average person assumes that he is the leader of the Sinaloa cartel. There's just one guy. In reality, the Sinaloa cartel is a federation. That's that's another name for it, where it's a partnership of high-level drug traffickers. So El Chapo was really relying heavily on his cousins, the Beltran Levas, who later had their own cartel, the Beltran Leva organization. Of course, El Mayo Zambada, who has never been arrested uh, and is, you know, Chapo's partner atop the Sinaloa cartel, and a handful of other key figures in the Mexican drug trade, all really helped El Chapo. For the most part, when he was in prison from 1993 to 2001, he was still able to run his business because he had you know, bribery in the prison to be able to communicate with the outside world. And also he had the Beltran Levas, he had El Mayo, he had members of his family who were helping him and running that business on the outside. And even when he's arrested later on, the the way he's able to tunnel out of prison is through his network of, of corruption. And corruption is uh, endemic in local police forces in Mexico, um, which is... Uh, part of why uh, the drug war down there began relying on federales. Um, would you say that uh, local police, are, in in your experience down there, and what you learned from your fixer, are, are still um, closely involved in, in the trafficking organizations? Undoubtedly. I mean, I've also been covering El Chapo's trial in the courtroom pretty much every day for you know over two months now. And the testimony that we've heard, it's clear that Virtually every level of the Mexican government and police forces are corrupt. That's not saying every police officer in Mexico or every member of the military is corrupt. But, 
we've we've heard everything from the local beat cops up to the state police, up to the federal police, up to military generals, up to the attorney general's office, and just recently the accusation that even the president of Mexico accepted a one hundred million dollar bribe from El Chapo. So uh, obviously, on my beat, uh, I cover the the fentanyl uh, crisis and the influx of fentanyl, which. Um, you know, began really in 2006 um, with El Cerebro uh, and the lab that was broken down there that caused close to 2,000 deaths in America. And then there was sort of a quiet period. Um, Did you find any evidence during your time down there that that Sinaloa is involved in the production or trafficking of fentanyl? Or do they rely primarily on their poppy uh, growing? Absolutely. One of the... the episodes of our show, we go into the Golden Triangle and we wanted to meet the farmers who were sort of at the the bottom of the supply train growing poppy uh, for the cartel. And the folks that we spoke to were complaining that the value of opium gum had plummeted in the last year and a half, two years or so, because there was less of a demand for classic heroin because the cartel had figured out how to synthesize fentanyl was making it in large quantities. So what was once the only way for them to make opioids for export to the United States, suddenly there's a new way that cuts out farmers, that reduces costs, and doesn't rely on seasonal poppy harvests anymore. You can have basically one guy in a lab cranking out kilos of fentanyl, you know, 365 days a year. Right, right. And and so I, I, I'm always fascinated with the way uh, certain policy decisions create, um, you know, the environment for um, unintended consequences to, 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 to occur. And, and, and so, you know, you know the, this, the crackdown on domestic meth pushed a lot of the precursor trade into Mexico. And there's been a strong line of, you know, uh, supply lines from China to Mexico for the meth trade primarily. Um, is Chapo and was the Sinaloa cartel involved um, heavily in meth production as well? We've heard a lot of testimony about that uh, in the trial. And sort of interestingly, it, the, some of the witnesses have made it seem as though one of the cartel's biggest business challenges was acquiring ephedrine to be synthesized to synthesize methamphetamine. However, clearly there's been no problem getting methamphetamine. Um, some of my colleagues on our show, Vice News Tonight on HBO, just recently went to a meth lab in Sinaloa where they talked about how just the, the massive amounts of drugs that they can manufacture and how demand for meth in the United States is just growing and growing and growing. So certainly meth is one of the more lucrative exports for the Sinaloa cartel. And just like fentanyl, they're not relying on plants in order to make this drug. It's it's more lucrative because all you need to do is buy the chemicals and have one trained cook who can make the product for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we're seeing now in, in Philadelphia for the first time uh, like high-quality, pure glass uh, crystal, you know, uh, which um, was largely non-existent from the streets of Kensington. Um, and I've seen it sold on the streets now. Um, it's sort of an ad hoc uh, process at this point. Um, it hasn't kind of adapted into the, the established heroin sets. But, um, and I've heard various reasons for that. Um, 
one of which is that the cartels are sort of mandating that uh, along the distribution chain that methamphetamine be taken along with fentanyl, if you want that. Um, and um, and I think part of that has to do with the, the different corridors. And, and one of my big criticisms about the way the media covers the fentanyl issue is that it's just one one monolithic sort of fentanyl market where it's hyperlocal, you know, geographically, the types of analogs, the types of, um, you know, and the supply chains are, are, are vastly different. So um, Atlanta seems to be a strong hub for the transportation of methamphetamine and fentanyl and that runs up to Philly and New York. Um, what did you learn about the corridors that Sinaloa runs? Um, the the testimony in the trial that we've heard so far, it, it's clear that the big hubs for the cartel are Phoenix, L.A., Chicago. Um, most of the drugs that the Sinaloa cartel crosses are going across the, the western edge of the United States border. So that's Nogales, that's Mexicali, Calexico, and uh, San Diego, Tijuana are the, the primary crossing points. And then those drugs get to Phoenix, those drugs get to L.A., where they're, they're broken down again and shipped primarily, you know, in vehicles, semi-trucks, um, or even smaller vehicles with hidden compartments across the country. Another fascination of mine in covering drugs and drug markets is this idea of the, um, what I call the freelancer effect, that, that when you break down structure, um, you know, you create balkanization, which is happening among the Mexican car- the cartels now. Um, what do you make of the so-called Pax Sinaloa, um, where at least for a time uh, there was a, a, a brief lull in some of the, the violence as, as Chapo solidified his, his hold? Um, um, what are your thoughts on, on what's going on now where there's um, balkanization among many of the cartels? And, and how much has that been a challenge in the absence of El Chapo to, the Sinaloa, to Sinaloa maintaining its dominance? Certainly, some of the worst periods of violence in Mexico occurred when the cartel fractured. There was the the break between Chapo and the Beltran Legava organization, which caused some horrific violence in Mexico in the late 2007, 2008, 2009. And then the the feud between the Sinaloa cartel, specifically El Chapo, and the Juarez cartel turned Juarez into the the murder capital of the Western Hemisphere for a good three to four years. There's a lot of dispute about what led to the violence declining. If you ask uh, the government of Mexico, they'll say it was their security forces coming in and restoring order. If you ask people who are familiar with the drug trade and people who are involved in it, they will say that there was a peace agreement that, you know, Everybody said, let's stop the blood. It's bad for business. Let's just get back to doing what we do, and that's shipping drugs across the border. Now we're seeing in Mexico the places with the worst violence are where there is no controlling cartel force. Uh, the state of Guerrero was once under control by the Beltran Leva organization. Now that that has, has crumbled, there are just smaller criminal groups who are fighting amongst each other, and that's that's really fueling the violence. Mm-hmm. We've uh, we have a case against um, Los Ardios, a Los Ardios operative as far up as Montgomery County. So, yeah, the, it seems that there is um, there is who controls the the borders, the corridor crossings, and then you know who is 
on the ground in the regions where poppy is being grown or, or the synthetics are being made, and, and then who controls the ports, which are, of course, important for precursors. Um, what do you make of the New Jalisco, uh, the, the CGNJ? Um, have they been a strong uh, um, rival of Sinaloa as it's made out to be in the media, or, or are they um, still a weaker player in this? Everything I've heard about the Jalisco New Generation cartel is that they are a force to be reckoned with. They they do control the state of Jalisco, which is south of Sinaloa, and some of the key ports in that state. Uh, I haven't heard as much about conflict between those two cartels. It seems that there is some violence, as there will inevitably be, as they sort of one encroaches on another's territory. But that that doesn't seem to me to be what's what's fueling the worst violence in Mexico right now. It's it, as we were just talking about. It's it's those areas where there isn't one controlling cartel force. Uh, areas like like the city of Acapulco, which for a long time was a key uh, corridor for the Sinaloa cartel to bring cocaine from South America uh, and ship it north. Now that the the group that once controlled Acapulco specifically. Uh, the cartel figure La Barbie is out of the picture. The, that's no longer has the ties to the United States, and the drug market is is in chaos with groups fighting each other for for control without having the source of money and stabilization that they once had. And we get into this this situation where it almost sounds like you want the cartel exist to exist because it maybe makes it more peaceful somehow. And I'm not sure that that's the argument I want to be making that that it's somehow better to have a cartel controlling everything because there's something perverse about that. But I don't think there's any denying that, you know, when a cartel leader, this this so-called uh, kingpin strategy where you're decapitating the leader of the cartel, that it does have a sort of a ripple effect that causes a spike in violence after somebody like El Chapo is arrested, extradited and, and taken out of the picture in Mexico. So let's talk briefly about the trial. Um, what were some of the big surprises um, that have happened uh, during this these proceedings? Every day brings a new surprise, a new bombshell. It seems the this just recently the accusations about uh, Enrique Peña Nieto supposedly asking for two hundred and fifty million dollars from Chapo and the Sinaloa cartel shortly after he won the election before he took office in 2012 uh, was a bombshell. The The witness who testified about that said that Chapo eventually paid a bribe of $100 million. Whether that's true or not, we heard no evidence to back it up. It was just this one cooperating witness saying that Chapo told him it was true. And that that one was everybody assumes that that Mexico is corrupt that there's rampant corruption but to hear names dates and amounts uh, said in open court it it takes it to a different level and i think it's important to have that that said on the other side the the judge and the prosecutors in this case have really tried to keep that out to make this a trial about el chapo's guilt or innocence and nothing else Whereas the defense wants to put, you know, basically the the entire government of Mexico, the entire drug war on trial. So you've seen this push and pull where prosecutors are really trying to limit anything that's said about corruption, um, especially high level corruption in foreign governments that work closely with the United States. And 
the defense is the one in in most cases eliciting the testimony about these bribes. It wasn't the prosecutors who asked the witness about bribing Pinyinieto. It was the defense, which is a weird thing to be in. They're trying to elicit a statement that says their client was accused of bribing the president of Mexico. And the reason that they did that was because the guy had sort of an inconsistent story where he wasn't saying the same amounts all the time. At first he had this $250 million ask and a $100 million payment. And then by the end of his interviews with U.S. law enforcement, he was like, "Ah, I can't remember the exact number. So Chapo's lawyers are trying to say, you can't believe this guy because he changes his story. But I think that nuance might be lost on the jury. And of course, we had a high-ranking member flip, um, uh, and and that was the uh, the son of Chapo's partner, correct? Um, that was that was unexpected. I I take it. Not not unexpected. I mean, uh, Vicente Zambada, who is the eldest son of Elmayo Zambada, uh, it had been known for uh, a couple of years now that he had signed a cooperation agreement and was one of the the people who was expected to testify. That doesn't make his his testimony any less you know it, powerful uh but there have been several sinaloa cartel members who have flipped on chapo including uh el rey zambada who is mayo's brother uh among others so we talked about this briefly on the phone um the, uh, before we we, we established this interview um and you recently did a a piece in vice about the um connection between China and the cartel for the precursor trade. Um, maybe you could elaborate a little bit on what you discovered there. Yeah, I mean, we speaking to, to folks involved in the drug trade in Sinaloa, it's it's clear that the, the drug trade, as it stands today, would not be able to function without a steady supply of precursor chemicals from Mexico. Or, excuse me, the drug trade in, in Sinaloa would not be able to function today without a steady supply of precursor chemicals from China. Those are the precursors that are used to make meth. Those are the cursor, precursors that are used to make fentanyl, and in some cases uh, that are used to process cocaine base into cocaine. Um, without that, it would be a totally different ballgame uh, in Sinaloa. What we found that I, or what, excuse me, what some of the recent reporting that I've done that I thought was interesting is when you hear about fentanyl discussed in the media, it, for the most part, it's it's blamed on China. You hear that it, it the way, if you re- read or watch TV, you, you get the sense that all of the fentanyl that's consumed in, in the United States is coming through the mail uh, from China, directly through the postal system, through couriers like UPS. If you look at the numbers, uh, the v- overwhelming amount of fentanyl is seized at ports of entry in the United States coming from Mexico. Uh, There was some question about whether or not Mexican cartels were buying already synthesized fentanyl and then smuggling across the land border or whether they were synthesizing it themselves. And, you know, I've heard sources confirm that there are fentanyl labs active in Sinaloa as we speak. We've had a couple seized as recently as last November. There was a Sinaloa, uh, Sinaloa cartel fentanyl lab uh, busted in Mexicali. Yeah, I have no doubt. Um, I mean, if you can make meth at eighty percent purity, which is certainly what we're seeing now, I mean, you can you can easily make fentanyl. Um, and that's why I I think the uh, you know I try to fight back against the idea that there is one you know monolithic market. And if you're in parts of Ohio, you know that's why you're seeing 
like you know you know some of the analogs carfentanil is um according to a source that i spoke to you know he attributed the spike in between 2016 and 2017 and fatals almost entirely to carfentanil and yet carfentanil has been almost non-existent in philadelphia's market mm-hmm. um and you know that's because i i believe we're we're on the corridor where we're getting you know low relatively low purity it comes across the border at seven to ten percent already um and uh you know the media i think has done a really bad job of sort of explaining that uh, and the nuances in in what this this illicitly made substance is and i think it's also understanding why why fentanyl i mean on on the one hand it, it is much more lucrative for the cartel because that you don't need to process opium gum you can cut farmers out on the other hand they you know, as demand for opioids increased in the United States, the cartels were faced with a, a supply challenge. It's like, how do you meet the demand with this limited, finite resource of poppies and opium gum? And I don't know who in the cartel had this idea, but somewhere along the way, they realized that we can synthesize fentanyl and mix that in with with uh, a, what, you know, the so-called China white heroin, the white powder heroin and, and stretch it out and be able to not only meet the demand but make more money along the way yeah and I, and I believe for a while they were they were selling it as heroin and you know the, along the the distributors along the way were paying heroin prices um, because at some point over the past year and a half and at least in Philadelphia uh, we're starting to see seizures where milling houses are packaged have fentanyl and heroin packaged separately you know they kind of figured out Hey, we're getting, we're getting conned here in a way, you know. Um, so I guess um, to wrap up, I would just say, you know, you know, you've done an amazing job. I, I encourage everyone to listen to the podcast, and I would ask you what you, your biggest, uh, you, you know, your biggest takeaway was. Um, you, you obviously uh, had a pretty strong knowledge of cartel politics uh, prior to uh, producing this. Um, you know, what was the, the biggest uh, takeaway from f- for you? And then um, how do you think the uh, trial is going to uh, wrap up? I mean, wh- what is it, what is it t- trending towards? You know, what does the jury look like they're believing and not believing? In terms of the, the biggest takeaway from this reporting experience, I think, you know, I, I was already a believer in investing in, in treatment and investing in harm reduction. And e- this basically made me double down on that. There's there's just no way to use the cliche, arrest your way out of this problem. Um, this is a demand problem, not a supply problem. And as long as the U.S. government's policies are focused on killing and capturing cartel members in Mexico and not you know helping Americans who are struggling with drug addiction, we're going to lose. It's going to fail. So... This is not experiencing this and being in Mexico and seeing how this impacts, um, you know, life there. It, it, it hasn't in any way changed you back into like some sort of staunch drug warrior. I mean, you know, what, what, what do you see as the is there a solution to this problem? America should think long and hard about a radical overhaul of drug laws. You look at what's happened with with marijuana uh, for a long time. That was a, a steady cash crop for the cartel. Uh, our reporting, uh, speaking to farmers who used to grow marijuana, that that's basically worthless for them now. There's no demand for, you know, Mexican marijuana for brickweed in the United States because you can get that 
in some cases legally in you know most of the western us some of the northeast at this point and it's an interesting thought experiment to say well what if you know suddenly opioids were legal or cocaine were legal or decriminalized and if the cartel was no longer able to make money off of those substances, you could make a pretty convincing argument that the cartel wouldn't exist. Donald Trump made such an argument in 1993, uh, which I never, uh, uh, it it always pleases me to point out as much as I can. Um, So, um, well, thanks uh, for being on the show. Keegan Hamilton is an editor at Vice News and host of the podcast Chapo, Kingpin on Trial. You can find him on Twitter at K-E-E-G-A-N underscore Hamilton. Thanks for listening to episode 12 of Narcotica. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Stiegel, and myself, Troy Farah. The cold open music is by ScanGlobe, followed by For Me, and our theme music is by Glassboy. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. If you like the program and you want to support us, there are a few ways you can help. Tell a friend about us. Most podcasts become popular via word of mouth or give us a decent rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash narcotica, where you'll get access to exclusive bonus content and help us pay our bills a little bit. We are so grateful for the people that make this program possible. Thank you. If you want to send us a suggestion, tell us about Mexican fentanyl, or just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. That's all for now. Take care.